Hi, this is Jill Harrison, Executive Director of the National Institute on Aging Impact Collaboratory at Brown University. Welcome to the Impact Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speakers and ask them the interesting questions that you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of the companion Grand Rounds content can be found at impactcollaboratory.org. Thanks for joining. Jennifer and Ariel, thank you very much for this extra time. This was a wonderful, wonderful um, uh, Grand Rounds. It was very exciting to hear from these two uh, pilot projects as to where they stand. And um, I have a couple of questions to sort of help uh, embellish the uh, responses we got to the great questions from the, from the audience. So let's start with you, Jennifer. I have then some questions for Ariel and then for both of you. So first, Jennifer, you mentioned that you were trying to measure the fidelity of the intervention as implemented to the model as design, relatively speaking. How hard was that to measure? Could it have been measured more pragmatically in a way that might have been more convincing? What do you think? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, and thanks so much. I'm excited to be here today. Um, so, you know, I think one of the things that we tried to do with this study, which I think helped make it pragmatic and be able to really measure fidelity is that most of the materials we actually embedded directly into the electronic health record. And we made those materials also structured data elements. And so when you build something within the electronic health record, you can kind of have it like kind of free text where you can't really pull it and analyze it and track it, or you can do it as structured. And so what we did was we had the tool that the primary care providers had to use to conduct the visits to be um, all structured. And so they could press buttons depending on how the patient responded. And they could also click that they didn't cover it or the patient wasn't ready to answer it. So we were able to really measure what components they've actually covered during that visit which components they didn't cover, and we were able to easily measure quality that way. Um, and then they also kind of tracked if a care partner was with them and how the visit was conducted, if it was video or through telephone. So um, it really made it easy and pragmatic to be able to really know um, if they followed the model, kind of how we designed it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and the docs were okay with the uh complying and doing this stuff? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, when we actually, um, you know, surveyed the providers and we actually did exit interviews. So we had site champions at each of the sites um, and we got really good feedback. You know, some of them, of course, you know, learning to document that way was a little bit of a challenge, um, you know, versus most primary care providers are, are used to just free texting these discussions. Um, but we had done qualitative interviews before and got what were the most common responses that patients would respond. So many of them found it really easy because the thing that the patient said, they were able to click on. But we did have the option of like other and free text options that they could add additional information if something wasn't there that they really wanted to ensure was documented. So you did a course correction and began allowing patients in the, into the study. Uh, who didn't have a caregiver. What what are the implications of this for larger studies? Is it more difficult to do? And um, who would you get to decide whether a patient without a caregiver could participate? How, how did that work? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think 
the crux for this and why we didn't think it would be problematic is we did have to have the patients did have to have capacity to participate in our study. Um, now, measuring capacity pragmatic is very, very challenging. You know, there, there isn't a really good way within the electronic health record to know if a patient has capacity to maybe consent to participate. So we did ask the primary care providers to let us know. So any patients that we felt would be eligible for the study, we reached out to the PCPs and they confirmed capacity or not. So once we knew that they had capacity, having that care partner um, essential didn't seem um, a needed requirement. And we're actually glad we made that adaptation because 39% of our patients didn't have a care partner. But it's really important that we know their goals and values and what's important to them and future preferences. So we didn't want to exclude such a, a big component. And I think because we had such a large trajectory of patients who had mild cognitive impairment to dementia, you know, many of those patients early stream don't have as much need for a care partner as they do as their disease progresses. That's actually great. So it it can be, in that sense, uh, pragmatic because of the distribution of what, uh, of who wouldn't have a caregiver, a, a care partner, et cetera. Um, so are you able to look at responses of the non-white study participants, and did they have a different experience? Have you done that? Yeah, we have. Um, you know, we um, you know, we used, um, you know, we had the patients fill out a survey, and we used two kind of validated mechanisms that Weiner and all developed. One is measuring acceptability, which is called the AIM. Um, And then the other one is kind of measuring appropriateness, which is I'm. Um, And the nice thing is they're written at like a fifth grade reading level. Um, They're just four simple questions. So there's not like, you know, question fatigue um, um, on patients. And they've been tested in different ethnicities, which is um, which is why they're a great tool to kind of kind of assess or or do people find this acceptable and appropriate. And we um, among whites for acceptability, we found 94% found it acceptable and minorities, it was 85%. And for appropriateness, it was 85% for whites and 98% for minorities. Um, so it was actually just slightly higher um, in minorities, yeah. um, though I don't, wasn't statistically significant. But um, yeah, we didn't find any differences, which was great. That's really encouraging. That's just terrific. Thank you very much. So. Ariel, let's take a quick shift uh, to you. Um, the PharmD in your intervention needs to be embedded in the primary care practices or to serve, or they serve sort of as a centralized resources resource to larger pools of practices. If you had to move forward and propose a model as part of it, really a big embedded trial, is there one approach that is more workable, do you think? Yeah, so first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Um, so we, what we learned is most important is that there's a pre-existing relationship between the pharmacists and the primary care providers. Um, so we've interviewed uh, pharmacists and, and primary care participants, um, and they all um, universally uh, stress the importance of that. So the PCPs told us that they're much more likely to accept the pharmacist recommendations if they have that established trust beforehand, as opposed to hearing from someone who is a stranger to them. Um, And so we found that that can actually be achieved through either a centralized model 
um, as at uh, Kaiser Permanente, uh, where we piloted in Colorado, um, or when the pharmacist is physically embedded in the practices as at Johns Hopkins Community Physicians, where we piloted in Baltimore. And um, the intervention was well received in both settings. So I think it is workable in either model as long as there is that established relationship. So that means that, for instance, if you were working with a, a you know, like a CVS or a Walgreens in a primary care practices in a particular part of the country, if that relationship were there, um, it might be better. Uh, but in other words, it might be something that a, a, a primary care group and a local pharmacy might actually undertake together. Yeah, so I think, I mean, that is a model... I, I think it would be great to explore, you know, how you could develop that trust between the PCPs and the pharmacists um, in something like a CVS beforehand. I think we've all gotten those, uh, you know, all of us who practice um, in primary care have gotten those letters from, uh, you know, unknown entities, um, whether it be someone at an insurance company or a um, pharmacy program. And um, I think those uh, are, challenging to respond favorably to um, when you don't know who's writing to you. So I think if there were a way to develop a relationship beforehand, I, I think it could definitely work. Great. Um, so in your study, you had a lot of potentially eligible patients and caregivers who declined to participate. Um, that doesn't really bode well for large-scale implementation. Do you know how much about uh, how much, uh, do you know much about how they declined and why they declined? Yeah, so that's, um, of course, a, a very important question. So um, most of those who declined um, told us that they didn't feel they needed to participate in a medication management program uh, like this one, um, or that they were just not interested. Um, and so I think that raises the question of how we can best describe this um, intervention to patients and families ahead of time. Um, or specifically, you know, or better target it to people who are interested in deprescribing. So, um, you know, just like any health behavior change, people have to be ready um, to deprescribe. And so I think, um, you know, maybe targeting is necessary or maybe um, tweaking the brochure that we mailed to patients and families ahead of time. Um, so I think that's uh, something for us to explore further. Um, Another reason that we heard from people who declined to participate was that they did not have a care partner, or less often, um, this was in, infrequent, but that they uh, declined to identify their care partner. Um, and so that actually made them ineligible. Um, and so I think the issue of not having a care partner is also something um, we should look into. Um, for example, this um, uh, was something that um, Jennifer raised, you know, were we, with our algorithm, were we misidentifying people who didn't truly have dementia? Um, and so that's why they didn't have a care partner. Was it something about our language um, that we, you know, the terminology of care partner, was that confusing to people um, or was it something else? Um, and then lastly, a few of them said that they uh, didn't have enough time, um, either the patient or the care partner, or uh, sometimes the patient was hospitalized when we um, reached out to them or they were in a skilled nursing facility, for example. Um, and we do still plan to, um, at Hopkins at least, um, to review some of the charts of people who declined, uh, or this is something we could do, 
um, to, uh, you know, explore whether there were differences, like were they less sick or was their dementia less um, advanced, uh, for example. Yeah, I think I think the issue of uh, the uh, how advanced the dementia is, you know, how long they've had some kind of diagnosis, and um, that might help a lot in your in the whole notion of whether it's targeting or um, sort of interests in general. Right. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, you talked briefly about a measure of medication regimen complexity. How is it characterized, and was it related to getting folks to reduce their medications or not? That is, the complexity of any individual patient's regimen of, of medications. Yeah, so that's a great question. So our primary uh, outcome measure that we were interested in testing uh, the feasibility of um, was the Medication Regimen Complexity Index, or the MRCI. Um, and so that is a measure of medication regimen complexity that takes into account the number of different dosage forms and routes uh, that a patient has in their regimen as well as the frequency during the day um, and any additional instructions for use. So things like whether a medication has to be taken with food or at a specific time of day. Uh, and so uh, we were interested in this measure because um, it may better capture the patient and uh, care partner experience um, as opposed to a simple medication count. Uh, and so it may better capture their experience of, of medication related burden. Um, so we are still uh, digging into our data. Um, so it's a little early to say. Um, what we are learning so far um, is that uh, it was easier for the pharmacist to deprescribe um, things such as statins or metformin in patients who had a hemoglobin A1C of, you know, six percent, for example. Um, so medications that have a questionable benefit um, as someone's dementia is uh, progressing um, and may no longer be goal aligned. Um, so those. Uh, medications may not impact the MRCI um, that much because they're just, uh, you know, often taken once a day. Um, but, um, but those may have been easier to deprescribe. Um, and then another really important point um, that we're learning um, is that the pharmacist told us that um, the caregivers were in many, the care partners were in many cases um, very, uh, anxious about stopping medicines that were being used to treat the dementia, like cholinesterase inhibitors, or medicines for behavioral and psychological symptoms. So, uh, you know, some of the potentially inappropriate medicines like sedative hypnotics. Um, and so they would say to the pharmacist during the goals alignment visit, please don't stop those medicines. And so there was this tension between deprescribing, which was one goal of our intervention, and trying to align medicines with goals of care which was the other goal. Um, and so I think that, you know, as I mentioned, we're still sort of looking into our data. And, but I think that speaks to the challenge of measuring outcomes in deprescribing trials. So the MRCI was the measure we chose, but that may not actually be the best measure of whether people feel that their medicines are aligned with their goals. And I think measuring that, especially pragmatically, is really challenging. Yeah, that would make sense to have um, uh, this medication complexity. So uh, I would imagine that another whole independent of cholesterol inhibitors or independent of even uh, other uh, drugs that might be problematic for persons with uh, dementia, 
just sort of saying, you know, so somebody can only may, might only need to take drugs at tw sort of twice a day, as opposed to, you know, maybe four times a day with different combinations doing it, et cetera. Sort of having them aligned in some particular way that's possible to, to simplify matters. That might be more um, desirable by the family members because they're the ones who have to set this up and do it. Right. Exactly. And so I think the pharmacists were trying to do that as well. Um, and so they part of what they were trying to do is identify which medications are particularly burdensome to the patient or the family and which medicines are they feel are particularly helpful. Um, and so um, I just think we were maybe, you know, what we found is we're trying to achieve multiple things that may not always be um, able to achieve simultaneously. That actually brings me right to the next question for both of you. So how viable do you think, given what you've learned and are still learning, um, that your interventions are now ready for a full-fledged EPCT? Are you ready to write your uh, R01 grants? Yeah, so I, I mean, I'll jump in. Um, so I think, uh, you know, first of all, so we um, have been interviewing care partners, pharmacists, and PCPs, as I mentioned, who participated in the pilot. Um, and so we're learning that it was highly acceptable across the board. Um, and so there's a lot of enthusiasm for PCPs work and families working with clinical pharmacists on deprescribing and on aligning medicines with goals of care. Um, you know, the pharmacists are highly trusted um, and can really help people make sense of these complicated um, complicated information and complicated clinical scenarios um, involved in deprescribing. So that's a positive. I think we have a few things to figure out um, before a full-fledged RCT. So I think the biggest challenge for us um, is that although this was designed to be a pragmatic trial, um, the process of goals alignment um, was very complex. And so, as I mentioned in the grand rounds, um, you know, most of these intervention visits took at least 30 minutes. There were multiple contacts between the pharmacists and the care partners and the PCPs. And so I think one thing we need to do, and we're currently talking to stakeholders to try to figure out um, opportunities to streamline the intervention. Um, so for example, uh, you know, as I alluded alluded to a minute ago, so focusing either on deprescribing of potentially inappropriate medicines or on aligning with patient and care partner goals, um, and maybe also streamlining the classes of medicines that we focus on, um, rather than looking at the entire medication regimen. So I think that's one thing. Um, I think you know we are finding that identifying care partners took a lot of time and resources on the part of research staff. Um, and so we actually have another ongoing project, as I mentioned during the Grand Rounds, to try to identify a way um, to an approach to systematically identifying care partners. Um, and then lastly, uh, we are sort of a secondary or exploratory outcome measure for us um, that we were interested in was a care partner reported outcome measure. Um, you know, again, trying to get at whether medications are more goal aligned and or whether people feel that the medications um, are less burdensome. Um, but that was challenging to collect pragmatically, especially at three months. And so I think um, pragmatically, you know, we need to learn more about how to pragmatically collect patient or care partner reported outcome measures. It's, it's particularly 
when you learn how to identify care partners, you're going to have a lot of people beating down, uh, getting advice from your, at your door because that's a, that's a challenge many people are having. Um, uh, how about you, Jen? Yeah, um, I think like Ariel, I think we definitely have some other things that we definitely need to think through before we move kind of full-fledged. Um, as I talked about, I think if we could come up with a way to pragmatically identify capacity, um, you know, it would be really uh, essential just because reaching out to the primary care providers and took a lot of times, you know, three or four outreaches before they would get back to us. And sometimes we would have to reach out to them by different venues, either email or telephone or portal to get responses. Um, so, you know, on a larger scale, that would be very, very challenging. Um, I think, you know, we, we use multiple mechanisms to identify um, our eligible patients. You know, we use ICD-10 codes, but we didn't want to solely rely on ICD-10 codes because we know that they're highly underutilized, especially in outpatient primary care. So we did use, um, you know, Barnes and all e-radar to get patients who likely have cognitive impairment, just don't have the formal diagnostic code on their problem list. Um, but that does require, you know, a substantial informatics build. Um, and so that is something we would have to think about too, if we want to scale this up is, you know, how do we do that? And, and it have to be in systems that have that infrastructure, um, which can limit, or is there a way that we can use more of a simplified mechanism to identify um, eligible patients or not? Yeah, so it's, it's what, interesting. Both of you are in a position where you're offering an intervention and a program to people who are not 100% sure they, one, know what it is, or two, um, know whether they want it. And so how to do that is a challenge altogether uh, without sort of asking for volunteers, which is really the height of unpragmatic. So um, interesting. One thing that we found that, you know, because we did involve the PCPs initially, you know, from the beginning, but when we reached out to patients and said your primary care provider wants you to do this intervention, uh, we had much higher buy-in, I think, because of that. Many patients saying they really trusted their primary care provider and they, if they felt they needed to do it, they would do it. So I think that can help just that rapport that's already there. No, that's a, that's a great point. That's a really, <clears throat> really excellent point. Um, so I want to thank you both very much for your time. Uh, this podcast will be then joined together with our uh, the, the Grand Round session that's available. So um, this will be one of uh, many that are going to be up and available on our website. So I thank you very much for gracing us with your company and your experience as one of the early finishers of the, uh, in, the in the pilot race, as it were. So thanks very much. And to the audience, um, please enjoy the others in the pool. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's Impact Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Please be on the lookout for our next Grand Rounds and podcast next month.